Well, this morning we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. As we'll see this morning, these are indeed ancient words, and yet that does not make them words that have no relevance to us, but in fact, their long-standing presence, these ancient words have thereby ministered to numerous, numerous, numerous saints over many thousands of years. And so this morning we turn to 1 Samuel 2. This is called Hannah's Prayer or the Song of Hannah. And we'll uh, hear the first 10 verses, the words of this prayer. This is the word of the Lord. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shoal and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So for the reading of God's word, may he bless our time in it this morning. I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open because we'll recover much of this ground as we understand this, this wonderful, wonderful prayer. It, not simply wonderful because of its, its literary beauty and its heartfelt fervor, uh, but because of the glorious truths of our God that are revealed uh, herein. It's interesting when you look at the books of Samuel, right, these books early on, where, where we, we have the account of Israel's transition to a kingdom, it's interesting that they don't simply begin with the story of that king, do they? It goes even further back. But interestingly there too, it doesn't even simply begin with the one who gives us the title of the book Samuel. But it starts us with Samuel's mother, Hannah. Now, much like the book of Judges, this book opens with uh, what you might say is a, a not-so-pretty picture of life in Israelite society. One of these things that you'd kind of be embarrassed if this is what you're known for, perhaps. Right? Look, in chapter 1, what we have is the story of a polygamist named Elkanah and his chaotic family situation of infighting between multiple wives illustrates really the rejection of God's intent for marriage between one man and one woman. We see this in, in full play here. 
And but not only do we have this polygamist Elkanah, we have this out of touch priest and an out of touch father. It's the same guy named Eli. He's an out-of-touch father in that he allows his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to live a life of theft and promiscuity, enabled by their position as priests. In fact, many in our day recognize this as the dynamics of spiritual abuse. This comes to the foreground in the next chapter, or I should say later in chapter 2. But also when it comes to his priestly work in, in 1 Samuel 1 verse 14, This priest can't even differentiate between the the heartfelt, gut-wrenching prayers of a grieving woman and the babblings of a drunk person. Now, I don't know what you think, but I think that's pretty out of touch if you can't even differentiate prayer from drunken babbling. But it's interesting, by focusing on this woman from the hill country of Ephraim, we see this shining light in the midst of a a really spiritually compromised society. Because here's this woman, Hannah, whose whose adverse circumstances, right? The fact that she's childless. We'll say more about that in this ancient context. That she's childless, childless and at the same time mocked by a rival wife for being childless. These adverse circumstances drove her to God's presence in the tabernacle. These circumstances drove her to fervent prayer, even though, if most of us are honest with ourselves, the great temptation is to flee from God, to go anywhere but God's presence in times of difficulty. Even after the humility that she must have faced, having to fend off those accusations of a spiritual authority figure in 1 verses 15 and 16, Hannah shows deep resilience and maturity. And and 1 verse 17 shows Eli blessing her and her going on her way rejoicing, even though things haven't actually changed in her life yet. Isn't that interesting? She's been heard by God, and that touches her. And that's what she needs. Even in what some might, ex- might describe as, or, or even experience as something of a grudging fulfillment of the promise to donate her child, to loan him, the Bible says, to the priesthood. After this vow that she made back in verse 11, it's interesting that when Hannah does actually bring the young Samuel to the tabernacle for service, her faith is full in God's promises. The last verses of chapter 1 show her delivering Samuel to the tabernacle. And some of you perhaps have dropped children off at college. I'm sure you can understand the, the, how gut-wrenching that is. But imagine if you're dropping off your young son. Not to see him play Little League. No chance to see him bring home knots and lashings from cadets. He's not going to demonstrate his fire-building skills. Well, hopefully our kids aren't doing a lot of that anyway. But, right... She's sending her young son off to serve at the tabernacle. And what does she do in response to that? She breaks in the song. Now, we should probably indicate there's no evidence that she sang our passage this morning, although it's no accident that her prayer is precisely the same structure and layout as the Psalms of Thanksgiving in the Psalter. It's not unlikely that she sung this. But it's still a remarkable 
song of thanksgiving. And this morning we will look at what we might call Hannah's Magnificat, Magnificat, very similar to the song of Mary that we'll sing in just a few minutes. And as we look at her song, her prayer, we see this. Hannah rejoices, not just because God has reversed her immediate plight, her need for a son. She rejoices because he has reversed hers, but also our ultimate plight by providing for us a savior and a king. So let's look at three things this morning as we walk through this text. First of all, we'll look at Hannah's claim. Secondly, we'll look at Hannah's grounds. And thirdly, Hannah's and our confidence. Okay? So first of all, Hannah's claim. I think when I look at this, that it's interesting how this this song of thanksgiving is laid out almost like a motion at a committee meeting or at a city council meeting, or at a synodical meeting. We, we start off with a, with a claim being made, a recommendation, as it might be said in a meeting, followed by three grounds, that is to say three of the main reasons that support the claim she's making. And, and there's really an organization to this that helps us see what she is declaring. And, and it's also fascinating that in this logical argument, as it were, about who God is relative to her circumstances, how grandiose this whole psalm is. She doesn't simply talk about her immediate plight, the things she has been wrestling with as one woman back in Ephraim. But the language gets ramped up to describe God's cosmos-wide reign. Salvation from a larger conflict, a larger plight. And I think this is a profound way to introduce a biblical book that isn't just about one woman being delivered. And and frankly, it's not just about one nation getting a human king way back when. But this opens up a book that shows us that kingship in Israel tells us a much bigger story about God's salvific reign over the whole earth. Let's look at, look at verse 1 again. Look how this thing begins, right? My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. The, the heart, of course, is, is that governing center of Hannah's being, exalting in the Lord. It's not merely externals. She's deeply touched in the core of her being. And her horn, her, her strength, That figurative source of her strength is exalted. By the way, don't forget that word horn. You may have caught it in our reading, but that's going to come back again in a very profound way. But already we're introduced to this horn strength idea. And and I love this third line. This is what I love about teaching Old Testament and learning Hebrew. All these little fun plays on words. The next line says, my mouth derides my enemies. But I love how the Hebrew is so vivid about it. It says, my mouth is opened wide against my enemies. Yeah, on the one hand, sure. It's opened wide wide as it derides them. Ha! You think you had victory. You're nothing compared to my God. But it's interesting, too, that wide mouth also gives the imagery of swallowing up her enemies. And why is that? Because I rejoice in your salvation. Now we find that to be a profound word as Christians, but what's fascinating is we can become so familiar with it that we don't realize that up to this point in the Old Testament, it's not a very common word. In fact, the last time the Old Testament used the word salvation 
was in Deuteronomy 32. And there in Deuteronomy 32, it was looking back on Exodus 15, which is, a, which is the account of Miriam singing about how God had given salvation to Israel by, by delivering her out of enslavement in Egypt. And this is significant then. Hannah is essentially describing her deliverance from, from barrenness, her deliverance from mockery, as cut from the same cloth as God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. This is the salvific God she worships. And she sees his mighty hand at work even in her puny little life. Isn't that remarkable? And so in light of this, look at her claim. She's standing up in front of the, in front of the city council now, and, or maybe church council, I don't know. She's standing up in front of the meeting, and, and she makes this claim. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. It's worth unpacking that. There's, there's a profound claim here about God's incomparability. That God is the creator. That God is utterly unique. That, that, that she can even ask, who is like him? Does anybody have any ideas? Who is really like God? The, the, this claim says that there is none holy like him. The holiest of the holy ones in heavenly places, those unfallen angels who minister before him, who live around and among us in ways we cannot even witness. Although, as the Bible says, we may have even at some times entertained angels unawares. We don't know. But even the holiest of those holy ones is nothing compared to the holiest of the holiest one. He is the creator, and they are but creatures. There's none holy like our God. And he says, there is none beside him. All right, God doesn't, doesn't need sort of a pantheon of other gods. He's not like one of the members of Marvel Comics' Avengers, right? He's, the, he's sort of this guy, but he's got some teammates who can back him up when he needs some help. No, there, there is none like him. There is none besides him. The angels aren't there to do something what God, that God is unable to do. And in fact, these so-called gods of the nations are just that, so-called, in fact, Today's so-called gods are just that as well, so-called. Whether the gods of science or the gods of government, the gods of power or wealth, the gods of popularity, the gods of, of pleasure, the gods of autonomy, all the gods around us in the world, but honestly, tempting our hearts too at times. They're nothing. Nothing compared to Yahweh. And finally, she says, there is no rock like our God. Rocks provide water. Back in Exodus 17, as Israel wandered through the wilderness, rocks gave them water. Rocks provide protection. Moses experienced that in Exodus 33 when God confronted him with his glory and God hid Moses in a rock and placed his own hand over him as his glory passed beside him. But rocks are also a defense. And none are a defense better than the Lord. David will say later in 2 Samuel 22, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation hmm. from violence. There is no rock like our God. And really, it's, it's in light of this claim then that Hannah goes on in the next part of verse 3 to exhort 
anyone who thinks too highly of themselves, anybody who would be proud, anybody who would be self-confident and autonomous. Look at what she says there. She, she says, I'm sorry, the first half of verse 3, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Because frankly, when one stands before a God so exalted, a God so mighty, a God so sovereign, what room is there for boasting, for arrogance, for proud speech? And what's fascinating is the first ground that Hannah will use to support this claim is going to highlight why arrogance and pride are so foolish before this God, because the proud can be humbled at any moment. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And we find here that Hannah is presenting us with the God of great reversals. That brings us to our second point this morning, to Hannah's grounds. That can sound a little confusing, as though Hannah is a, is a, a real, um, real, she really likes coffee or something, right? She's got her grounds. No, again, we're thinking of these reasons that support her claim, okay? And, and she gives these reasons in the second half of verse 3, the second half of verse 8, and the second half of verse 9 using the word for. Our English Standard Version nicely captured that, the word for helps to show the various reasons that she can utter this claim with such confidence. The first ground she gives is, like any good committee report, it's the most compelling one. And it's the one that she treats uh, with the most words and and in some ways carries the most weight. But it describes uh, in these verses, it starts in the second half of verse 3, For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Listen to the logic. There's none holy like the God. There's our God. There's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And what happens then is we see this, these attributes of God, his knowledge that he uses for rendering fitting judgments. We see this played out in a number of opposites where God very easily reverses the circumstances of people because he can. And when he does so, he is good. We see it applied to war. He talks about... uh, He he talks about warriors who, who are, of course, tempted very much toward overconfidence. Warriors are sort of our, our, our macho people, right? If anybody... Very few warriors go into battle saying, I, I, I think I might get completely wiped out here. No, they train and they go in with confidence. We will be victorious. And yet the reality is that numerous times in history, the seemingly inevitable victor is is vanquished. Pharaoh and his hosts versus the Hebrews. Who wins? Yahweh wins, bringing his people Israel through. Judges 7 speaks of Midian being defeated by a much smaller force. 2 Kings 19 describes the Assyrian war machine headed by the mighty king Sennacherib fleeing Jerusalem like they just saw the boogeyman or something. God can reverse the fate of these proud warriors. He reverses them because his knowledge is perfect and he renders fitting judgments. She also describes in the the next verse about 
physical well-being. How those who are full are often tempted toward overconfidence and boasting as well. And yet here it says that those who were full suddenly are found hiring themselves out for bread. Just some crumbs. And yet those who were hungry, who perhaps had been hiring themselves out just to earn a couple of crusts of bread, they have ceased to hunger. Quite woodenly, it could even be translated, they have now become fat on the abundance of food available to them. And throughout history, God has reversed the circumstances of these very people. Think of in the wilderness where God provided manna and quail to empty stomachs. He provided water from the rock to empty stomachs. In, in, sec, in 1 Kings 17, ravens fed the prophet Elijah. And the widow had, a, had flour and oil that kept miraculously reproducing to provide for her. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ feeds the multitude, gives them so much in abundance, not only do they go away full, but there's full baskets of leftovers. God reverses the fate of those who boast in plenty. God reverses the fate in terms of family at the second half of verse 5. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Now, of course, in some ways, this may allude to Hannah's situation of having been barren, except we learn later on she ends up having six children, not seven. And so we see that this isn't just about Hannah, but this is about, this is about women all over who had no support suddenly having the fullness of support. Whereas the one who had many children is now forlorn. Keep this in mind something we lose sight of today when we have numerous opportunities for support in retirement. We may have social security. We may have retirement funds. We may have pensions. You may have a 401k. Any number of things that would help you make it just fine in retirement. But in the ancient world, there were no 401ks. Your best source of retirement was children. Children who could care for you when you could no longer care for yourself. And so it is so striking that the one who thought they had no hope, the one who thought, I will starve long before my body would give up because no one can take care of me, suddenly has children, suddenly has a hope, suddenly has a future. God reverses the fate of those who boast in their security. The one who has seemingly a full 401k, a full pension, a full everything, a gold mine that maybe was given to them by an uncle. That'd be a great uncle to have, right? The one who thinks all these things suddenly finds out that gold mine is full of nothing. Finds they have nothing. And they were boasting in it. God is the God of great reversals. He's the God who can reverse life and death, as we see in verse 6. And of course, the bringing to life fixes our attention of that great bringing to life that he worked in our, in our Savior Jesus Christ. But also that great bringing to life from the grave that we wait for as Christians. And he can bring down those from life to death as quickly as he wishes as well. Wealth and status, same thing. And yet we have here Hannah getting the ultimate transition, as it were, from the trash heap to the table of nobility. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. 
And so if we were to summarize this first ground, this first claim, who else can do this? Anybody? No one. There is none alongside God who can even help in this. There is no one holy like our God. There is no rock like our God. You see, his knowledge and his judgments and his actions in relation to people's circumstances are perfect. There is no rock like our God. Her second ground, though, we find in the second half of verse 8, again with the word for. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Right? How, how is it that God is, has been able to do all this? And the answer is, he is the creator God. There's only two kinds of beings in all of history, in all of existence. There are creatures, and there is a creator. Singular. Only one. It's not a team. The cosmos were not made by committee. There's a creator. And it's amazing how this verse depicts our God as a master builder. Right? He's, he's building this universe, building this earth, as though he's hewing out columns and hewing out pillars. And he's then moving them and spacing them just right. And he, he is carefully setting them up and balancing them. He's got his plumb line and he's plumbing them up just right. And then he sets the world on top of that, as it would seem there, right? He, uh, on them the Lord has set the world. In Hawaii, first time I went to Hawaii, well, the only time I've been to Hawaii, I remember being struck by these houses on the north shore of, of the island of Kauai that were built up on stilts. And you see them on TV and other coastal places as well. These stilts, Why? It's because when the storm surge comes during the winter or, or the typhoon comes and waters pour in, the house isn't washed away. The inhabitants aren't washed away. I mean, remember our law passage this morning about building on the rock? Same kind of idea. This, in their case, is the rock of these pillars. And the residents then stay high and dry. And this is exactly what she is describing has benefited her because we have... The Lord setting his world on these pillars in verse 9, now illustrating it, saying he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. It's an amazing association here. The earth. And what's the main part of our bodies we put on the earth? I know we do push-ups and that kind of thing occasionally. What's the main part of our bodies? Our feet. And our feet on this earth are hereby stable. The faithful have stable footing on this well-ordered creation. They're safe. They're protected. Whereas the wicked have their houses washed away from that ridiculous sand foundation. The wicked are down in the churning floodwaters instead of up on the safe pillars. There's no one holy like the Lord. There is none beside him. There is no rock like our God. And the final thing she cites, the final ground she gives, is in the second half of verse 9, that final little line, for not by might shall a man prevail. Not by might shall a man prevail. You see, human strength, human might is as nothing compared to God. And, and, and this is how she illustrates it. She says that, that the adversaries of the Lord in verse 10 who try to array themselves against the Lord in their own might, are broken to pieces. 
And in fact, God thunders against them in heaven. This reminds us of Psalm 2. The, the nations arraying themselves against God. And yet God's saying that they will be dismayed. They shall fear indeed. And so Hannah has, has seen her fate, her situation reversed by the incomparable God. And at the same time, she has exploded her praise far beyond her circumstances to the whole of the world. God is the creator who provides stable footing for his own. God is the author of life who raises from shoal, from the grave itself. God is the victor over his foes who defends his own and and replaces their defeat with valor. But I love this final summary she gives. That brings us to our last point this morning. Hannah's and our confidence. At the end of verse 10, Hannah kind of... uh, Gives us a summary report. Again, I don't want to be cheeky about this, but imagine her standing before Mr. Chairman. I'd like to just make a summary before we seek a second on this motion. She says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And did you notice the correspondences of all that we've just considered, right? Remember ground one, God knows and weighs deeds, and what do we find here? He judges. The second ground, God fixes the pillars of the earth. And what does he do here? The next part of the summary, he judges the earth. And that third ground, human so-called might cannot prevail against God. And here we hear of the truly divine might that is given. And yet that third feature is especially key because he gives strength to his king. And he exalts the horn of his anointed his Messiah, his Mashiach. See, Hannah remembers Deuteronomy 17. Hannah remembers that God had made provision for a king for Israel. And so in this era of chaos, after the time of the judges, but quite frankly in the midst of the judges, because both Eli and Samuel are themselves called judges, but in the midst of this chaotic time, Hannah sees where things are starting to go. And that God has given by her a kingmaker. Samuel will anoint Saul. Yes, the first king. And that story doesn't end so well. But then Samuel anoints David. And the books of Samuel then tell the story of Israel's transition to a kingdom. But in doing so, Samuel will play a pivotal role in preparing for a greater king. It's no accident It's no accident that when when Mary heard that she was expecting the great king of all kings, she expresses awe at that incomparable God who has blessed her beyond all human blessing, beyond all human expectation, beyond all ability. It's no accident that Mary's Magnificat echoes the song of Hannah so closely. I'm going to turn there and and keep looking at our passage and, and listen to these echoes that Mary that Mary taps into in her own prayer. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. A lot like verse 1 of our passage. 
And she goes on to say things that echo the beginnings of verses 3 and 4. She says, He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Verse 2 echoes there. Holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Look at how this echoes the second half of verse 9. He has shown strength with his arm. Back to verse 3. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Over to verse 7. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Over to verse 5. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Isn't that amazing? That 1 Samuel 2 is giving us a picture of all that will be brought to fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Samuel 2 shows Samuel as a faithful priest who is answering Eli's failed priesthood. And if we were to go on this morning in 1 Samuel 3, we'd see that Samuel is that needed prophet who is giving revelation and vision in a period of rebellion and darkness in Israel where they're rejecting God's word. But Samuel is not a king. He's a kingmaker, yes, but he's not a king. He's not the answer to Israel's plight and ultimately to our own plight. But Hannah proclaims that a better king will come, a better horn, a horn that is much greater than Hannah's horn in verse 1, that messianic horn that will vanquish every foe. A king strengthened with the divine strength. The anointed one himself. You know, in David's best moments, in David's best moments, he'll, he'll sort of portray the contours of this perfect king, this perfect prophet, this perfect priest even. And yet, David's worst moments show that he ultimately points us to Christ by means of contrast. Because Christ is the greater David, the one who was not guilty of adultery and not guilty of murder. And who always acted according to the Father's will. Christ is the one to whom Samuel and David ultimately point. And that's why this morning these words are so valued by us and applicable and relevant to us as Hannah fixes our gaze on Christ today. So we close this morning. Let me say this. Christian, you can turn to God as Hannah did. In her brokenness, in her despair, she cried out to him. And you can do the same. He's not too busy for you. He listened to her. He had compassion. And Christ intercedes for you, beloved. And he brings your prayers before the Father. You don't have to gussy them up good enough. For Christ brings them perfectly before the loving ear of your heavenly Father. He is our great high priest. God listens to us, shows compassion to us, and so don't be slow to turn to him. But also Hannah's prayer this morning invites us to enlarge our vision of God. In her case, in Hannah's case, God addressed her immediate plight. And isn't it wonderful when God does that for us as well? When we are faced with something very vivid, something very pressing, maybe a medical emergency, maybe a work situation, and he addresses it. And we pray about it and he meets our needs as we had hoped. 
What a blessing. But even when he leaves these immediate requests seemingly unanswered, even when he leaves this immediate plight, this immediate situation unresolved for us, Hannah's song reminds us that he is still the God who has addressed our ultimate plight. He is the one who in Christ is for us, not against us. In Christ, he has forgiven our sins and granted us the righteousness of Christ himself. And in Christ, this God is making all things new, renewing us day by day, already now, giving us a taste of the new heavens and the new earth, wherein Christ will be all in all. Hannah's song breaks so far beyond the circumstances of ancient Israel and draws us to God's eternal plan for his people in the Son. Praise be to him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for confronting us again with this surprising message that you do not leave us to fend for ourselves, but that you have given us your Son, that you've prepared for him for centuries, indeed millennia, at the hands of the Old Testament prophets, the faithful of old, passing these ancient words down along to one another. And thank you, Lord, that they have reached us and that by faith you have worked faith and change in our hearts, Lord. Lord, we pray for those today who still do not know your Son, still are not sure if he is who he says he is. Oh, Lord, may Hannah's portrait of him convict them. May they despair of themselves and flee to his open arms. Hear our prayer now for Jesus' sake. Amen.